Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 2023 Edwin Meese III Originalism Lecture. Please welcome John Malcolm, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I want to thank you all for joining us today uh, for the second annual Edwin Meese III Originalism Lecture, which will be delivered tonight by Professor Kurt Lash. This lecture honors former U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese, who, through a series of speeches in 1985 and 1986, was instrumental in sparking a revolution in the law by reinvigorating what he called a jurisprudence of original intention. Mind you, this, of course, should not have been revolutionary at all, since judges prior to the progressive era had long practiced originalism. But times had certainly changed, that is, until Ed Meese came along. And look how far we have come since then. A solid majority of justices on the Supreme Court today are self-professed originalists. And during her confirmation hearing, Justice Elena Kagan went so far as to say that today, we are all originalists. Well, color me skeptical, but hope springs eternal. <laughs> I am delighted that the man who sparked this revolution, Ed Meese, is with us here today. that several distinguished federal judges are with us here tonight. You know, rumor has it that there are places where some of you are not welcome. <laughs> Hard to imagine. Well, you are certainly welcome here, although I would never refer to heritage as a safe space. <laughs> I am, of course, very reluctant to single any of you out, but I have to say, that it is a particular honor to have with us uh, tonight someone who is instrumental in advancing originalism and who has been a federal judge for 52 years and counting. Judge Clifford Wallace of the Ninth Circuit. Judge, thanks for being here. <laughs> Professor Lash will speak about originalism and fixing the 14th Amendment. Professor Lash is the E. Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Richmond, where he teaches constitutional law. A graduate of Yale Law School, Professor Lash began his career clerking for Judge Robert Beezer on the Ninth Circuit. He has been a visiting professor at Northwestern University School of Law and is the former director of the University of Illinois College of Law's program in constitutional theory, history, and law. His scholarly articles have appeared in prestigious law journals, and he is the author of several books, including The 14th Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities of American Citizenship, and he served as the editor of the recently published two-volume collection of original documents entitled The Reconstruction Amendment's Essential Documents. Please join me in welcoming Professor Kurt Lash.
John, um, thank you so much. Um, it is an extraordinary honor to be here and to be surrounded. I mean, just looking um, at the room, uh, the individuals in this room, uh, scholars, judges, lawyers, clerks, people who I've known for so many years um, on this journey up to a podium to talk about originalism. It's just, and I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, I, had, I was raised by a single mom uh, in, in poverty, her and the three kids, first generation professionals all. And, and some, somehow that path from, from New Mexico led me into this extraordinary career of scholarship and studying of the, um, of the original Constitution. I'd, it, it's, hard, it's hard to know how to thank everyone, but I'd, I want to especially thank my mother, who recently passed away just a month or so ago. Um, God bless her, and God bless her for all those trips to the library when we were, we were growing up. And I have to, I have to thank my wife. Uh, who raised our kids, who works at a crisis pregnancy center, teaches catechism at our local Catholic church, and reminds me daily about what is important in life. And I'm also especially honored to receive an award named in honor of Attorney General Edwin Meese. He and I um, actually met a long time ago. I'm sure he doesn't remember, but I do. Um, about two decades ago, on June 26, 2007, the Federalist Society held a conference in the Mayflower Hotel, right, just up, uh, just up the road, to discuss the works of Judge Robert Bork. I was invited to speak um, on an opening panel on originalism and the Ninth Amendment. I was still a new scholar. I was extremely nervous, all the more so because the moderator of the panel was Attorney General Meese, and I somehow stammered through um, my remarks, which at that time focused on Judge Bork's famous description of the Ninth Amendment as a text obscured by an inkblot. And I agreed that at the time that Judge Bork used that description, we knew very little about the Ninth Amendment, but that since that time, originalist investigation of the Ninth Amendment revealed that it actually, from the beginning, had been understood as working alongside the Tenth Amendment as one of the twin guardians of federalism. Panel concluded, and the Attorney General approached me and thanked me uh, for my words about Judge Bork. He said some very overly kind words about my theory of the Ninth Amendment, and he encouraged me to keep researching and writing on the original understanding of the Constitution. I was absolutely thrilled, and I never forgot those words of encouragement, and I, I took them to heart. Um, since that day, in 2007, I've spent my entire career researching, writing, studying, teaching, and arguing about uh, the original meaning of the Constitution. And, uh, and along the way, it's just been my honor to get to know this incredible community of scholars and judges who are committed, committed to the same thing, to figuring out um, and vindicating the original vision of the people who framed and ratified our Constitution. I can't think of a more fulfilling career, and I'm blessed to have been started down this path so many years ago. And so my deepest thanks uh, to the Attorney General. Words of encouragement mean a lot to a young scholar, to old scholars too. And I hope I followed and still follow your good example and have encouraged others. For example, I'd like to claim to have encouraged a certain young scholar who was last year's very deserving inaugural recipient of this award. However, Professor Josh Blackman was on fire long before he ever met me, and he still is. 
And although Josh is slightly younger than me, by two or three decades, somewhere along, along those lines, I am just so extraordinarily happy and honored to have followed in his footsteps. Josh, it's great. It's great to see you here. This evening, I'd like to say a few words um, about originalism and the 14th Amendment, in particular, the section one of the 14th Amendment. I've titled this talk, Originalism and Fixing the 14th Amendment, and I recognize the hubris in that title. It suggests that the 14th Amendment needs fixing and that I know how to do it. This is, of course, what law professors always claim. It is our job. And in this case, the title actually has kind of a double meaning. First of all, um, the title of tonight's talk uh, can be understood as a bit of a play on words. The first step of originalism involves identifying the original meaning of constitutional text and treating that meaning as fixed at the time of its adoption. The second step of originalism requires applying this fixed meaning in a manner that meaningfully constrains the application of the amendment to current constitutional disputes. So yes, I do claim that the meaning of the 14th Amendment should be fixed in the sense that it meaning should be fixed at the time of its drafting and ratification. But of course, the title also means more than just that. I also believe, and in fact, I imagine that many, if not most, in this room also believe that there's something not quite right about the court's current jurisprudence of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And I'm not talking about decisions that we believe are incorrect. I'm talking about a deeper problem, one that goes beyond particular outcomes in particular cases. There's something wrong, I would claim, with the court's entire approach to Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And what I'd like to do tonight is explain briefly why I think that's the case and make some tentative suggestions about how the court might begin to remedy or to fix that particular problem. So let's begin with the text of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And I think you should all feel free to Google it right now if you'd like to, or if you have your pocket constitutions. That this is what I tell my students. The text is primary, so this is, this is where we begin. Here's Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws." End quote. Notice how this text elegantly distinguishes the rights of citizenship from the rights of all persons. Notice also that three of the five clauses of Section 1, the majority of the words, address the status and rights of citizenship. Despite this textual emphasis, the Supreme Court currently enforces only the last two provisions of Section 1. In law school, the second half of constitutional law is almost completely devoted to issues relating to the due process and equal protection rights of all persons. The only thing students learn about the citizenship clauses is that the Supreme Court killed off the privileges or immunities clause in the slaughterhouse cases. And other than perhaps a very brief mention about how the opening sentence overturns Dred Scott, the first three provisions of Section 1 remain unexamined. 
Now, of course, that's perfectly appropriate for lawyers in training, given that the Supreme Court leaves these three opening citizenship clauses unexamined and unenforced. The court's model of section one leaves the citizenship clauses on the side, like leftover pieces of the Lego model of the space shuttle I recently tried to build with my grandson, or like the leftover pieces of anything that I buy at Ikea and try to build before my wife gets home. <laughs> but just like that Lego model or that chair from Ikea, as much as you hope that those leftover pieces weren't really necessary, the terrible truth is unavoidable when you and your grandson try to set the space shuttle upon the table. The wing of the shuttle keeps falling off. The astronaut keeps falling out. And you, or worse, your wife, will almost certainly fall out of that IKEA chair if someone tries to sit in it. <laughs> Leftover pieces, in other words, are generally a sign that your model has a problem. Somewhere along the way, you have missed a critical step, maybe several steps. And the result is a misshapen creation that likely will not work as originally intended. In the case of the 14th Amendment, leaving out the citizenship clauses and trying to build the model entirely on the last two sentences of section one has produced a sadly disfigured creature known as substantive due process. And without beating this poor beast any more than others have already done, let's just say that it's likely that not a single justice on the current Supreme Court believes that substantive due process is persuasive as a matter of text or the original understanding of the due process clause. And matters get no better when we turn to the court's equal rights jurisprudence. Although the final clause speaks only of equal laws that protect, the court has created a jurisprudence demanding equality in laws that provide. An increasing number of scholars now believe that the equal protection of the laws clause, as my friend Professor Chris Green likes to call it, guarantees nothing more than the equal protection of the natural rights of life, liberty, and property, natural rights that belong to all persons, regardless of citizenship. This clause was not originally understood as having any application to the discriminatory denial of local civil rights and benefits. The Equal Protection Clause does not apply, in other words, to local benefits like publicly funded education, the benefit at issue in Brown v. Board of Education. I'd be willing to bet, again, that a majority of scholars today do not believe that the decision in Brown v. Board is supported, much less required, by the original understanding of the Equal Protection Clause. Now that is not to say that Brown came to the wrong result in terms of the original understanding of Section 1 as a whole. In fact, by the end of this talk, I would like to explain how a different clause in Section 1 supports the court's jurisprudence of anti-discrimination in local civil rights, including the equal right to a publicly funded education. For now, my only point is that the court's current focus on only the last two clauses of Section 1 has produced a jurisprudence that lacks any identifiable relationship to the text or to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment's due process and equal protection clauses. And let's not even speak about Bowling v. Sharp. And somehow, where the court managed to read the, read, uh, the 1868 equality principles back into the 1791 due process clause. Bowling is simply the most obvious sign that something is not completely right 
about the court's approach to the final two clauses of section one. Now, thankfully, some justices on the current Supreme Court are beginning to realize that they may have made a mistake in not revisiting and investigating those first three clauses. Just last term in Dobbs against Jackson, Justice Alito's majority opinion recognized the possibility that the privileges or immunities clause might better serve as a source of substantive 14th Amendment rights. And in fact, scholars have long urged the court to move the doctrine of incorporation of the Bill of Rights out of substantive due process doctrine and into the privileges or immunities clause. Justice Thomas has long encouraged the court to take another look at the privileges or immunities clause as a better source of substantive rights. He said so at great length in his concurring opinion in McDonald against Chicago, and most recently, Justice Thomas has gone even further. He's now encouraging the court to re-examine the opening national citizenship and state citizenship clauses of the 14th Amendment. In last term's case, United States against Madero, Justice Thomas declared that future courts and future scholarship should abandon the problematic reading of Bowling against Sharp and consider the possibility that the opening clauses of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment are the clauses that secure the equal rights of American citizenship. And that small suggestion, I believe, contains the key to fixing the 14th Amendment. In the remaining time I have, I'd like to briefly explain why I believe the history and meaning of those clauses is so important and may give us a path back to a stable model. Citizenship. The original Constitution left both state and national citizenship undefined. Antebellum courts and commentators presumed that determining the status of state citizenship had been left to the individual states. The common antebellum practice in terms of white Americans was to treat local state residents as citizens of that state, and white citizens of a state, in turn, were presumed to be citizens of the United States. The situation for black Americans, however, was quite different. Enslaved black Americans held no legal rights whatsoever. But even free black Americans often lacked the same rights of citizenship as those conferred upon white Americans. Free black residents in slaveholding states were denied the status of citizenship and denied the equal rights of citizenship in a variety of matters. They lacked the right to vote, and they often faced racially restrictive laws on the ability to buy and sell property, contract for labor, or engage in protected expression or religious exercise. Free black, uh, free black sailors from northern states faced imprisonment upon sailing into southern ports. But even in the north, states often denied free black Americans equal civil rights, including suffrage rights, and even occasionally the right to immigrate into the state. In Dred Scott, the Supreme Court pointed to that long history of discrimination against black Americans and concluded that they were not and could not be citizens of the United States. That decision helped inflame an already divided country and helped trigger civil war. Republicans, for their part, never accepted the reasoning of Chief Justice Taney and Dred Scott. As far as Republicans were concerned, every person born on American soil was a citizen of the United States and of their state of residence. When Republicans passed the 13th Amendment in 1865, they did so with the expectation that emancipated black Americans would now automatically enjoy the status of national and state citizenship. Unfortunately, Southern Democrats had other ideas. Instead of granting the status and rights of equal citizenship, the former rebel states enacted the Black Codes, 
Those codes not only denied free black residents equal civil rights, they also imposed draconian vagrancy laws which allowed for the arrest of unemployed black Americans who could then be sold into a system of convict labor. In response, Republicans in the 39th Congress passed the 1866 Civil Rights Act. The opening line of that act declared, quote, all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. The act then went on to demand that, um, that states provide black citizens the same local rights of property, contract, and labor as white residents. The problem was it was not at all clear whether or not Congress had power to pass such an act. Even if Congress had the authority to establish the right of national citizenship, the substantive provisions of the Civil Rights Act addressed matters that related to local civil rights and not national civil rights. Even Justice Curtis, who had descended in Dred Scott, noted that the Constitution reserved to the states the power to confer or to deny the status of state citizenship to local residents. So it was quite possible that federal courts would rule that the Civil Rights Act was unconstitutional and that states continued even after the Civil War to retain the right to decide who could and who could not be a state citizen. Nor was this potential problem with the Civil Rights Act solved by the initial draft of the 14th Amendment, an amendment that was posed, uh, proposed just a few weeks after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. The opening section of that initial draft, which was proposed by the Joint Committee of Reconstruction and drafted by John Bingham, contained only three of the current five clauses of Section 1. It contained the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause. The draft left national citizenship undefined, and it said nothing at all about the status and rights of state citizenship. When the Joint Committee presented the proposed amendment to the Senate, Senate Republicans immediately recognized the problem and they began to offer amendments to this initial draft. By the end of the day, Republicans had decided to leave the Senate chambers, move elsewhere in the city of Washington, D.C., and meet in a series of private caucuses where they would propose amendments to changing and fixing the omission of the current, of the current Civil Rights Act. When they returned, Senator Jacob Howard announced a proposed addition to Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. It would now begin with language that defined and secured both the status of national citizenship and the status of state citizenship. The opening sentence of the 14th Amendment would now echo the Civil Rights Act, but the second provision would be brand new and had not been seen before. Here's the language that now opens Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Henceforth, persons born on American soil were citizens of the United States regardless of race, and these citizens were equally citizens of their state of residence. The third citizenship clause, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, then ensured that no state could make or enforce any law denying or abridging their new constitutionally secured status as equal state citizens. When the draft was passed and sent to the states for ratification, Americans North and South recognized the meaning and the importance of the opening clauses of the 14th Amendment. 
Here is how one newspaper in the South described those clauses. It's a black American newspaper from New Orleans. Quote, let us only consider the first section. All persons born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. This doctrine is the correct one. It was absurd to tell a man, you're a citizen of the Republic at large, but you have no rights in your own state. You're not even a citizen there. Every man of African descent is not only declared to be a citizen of the state wherein he resides, but he will be entitled to the same privileges and immunities as any other citizen. In other words, all classifications among citizens must fall. Legislation must consider all classes of citizens as forming one single mass for which all laws must be equal. No discrimination can be made in the future, either on account of color or on account of naturalization or origin. Every title of citizenship is declared to be of like value and to confer the same rights. Years later, Justice John Marshall Harlan, the first Justice John Marshall Harlan, described the citizenship clauses in the same way. In the civil rights uh, dissent, Harlan explained, but what was secured to color citizens of the United States is between them and their respective states by the grant to them of state citizenship. Well, there is one, if there be no others, exemption from race discrimination in respect of any civil right belonging to citizens of the white race in the same state. Citizenship in this country never necessarily imports equality of civil rights among citizens of every race in the same state. It is fundamental in American citizenship that in respect of such rights, there shall be no discrimination by the state, its officers, or by individuals or corporations exercising public functions or authority. I think that Harlan was right. And as a matter of original meaning and public understanding of the citizenship clauses, I think he was especially right. Revisiting and enforcing the original meaning of all three citizenship clauses offers a way out of the court's currently misguided jurisprudence, which forces all rights, substantive and equal, into the last two clauses of section one. Brown v. Board was right to demand that states provide equal civil rights to resident American citizens regardless of race. But it's not because of the Equal Protection of Laws Clause. It's because states may not deny their citizens equal civil rights on the basis of race. Bowling also was right to declare that the federal government may not deny its citizens equal education benefits because of their race, not because of the Due Process Clause, but because of the National Citizenship Clause, which prohibits dividing American citizens on the basis of their race. And finally, the court has correctly interpreted the 14th Amendment as making the Bill of Rights enforceable against the states, but it's not because of the Due Process Clause, but because Americans in 1868 understood the provisions of the Bill of Rights declaring the privileges or immunities of American citizenship, and that those privileges and immunities once enforced only against the federal government should now be enforced against the states. In closing, it would be helpful if we admitted that our model of the 14th Amendment is in need of some repair. Public acceptance of the legitimacy of the court's decisions requires a convincing account of how those decisions reflect the actual sovereign will of the people themselves. In this case, the sovereign will of the people who gave the last full measure of their devotion in saving the Union 
and in securing equal rights to Americans regardless of race. Fixing the 14th Amendment re means revisiting this text and this history and rebuilding the resulting jurisprudence, only this time using all of the pieces. Thank you very much. Um, responding to their book, which came after, after yours, you mentioned that your views of the Privileges or Immunities Clause uh, has changed over time. And, yeah. and how so and, and why did that change? Right. Um, and the, the difference, uh, Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick, their, new, you know, their, their latest book on um, the 14th Amendment, Letter and Spirit, I think that's, uh, uh, that's the, um, the title. They've, they've developed a theory of the Privileges or Immunities Clause that, that allows for, actually requires, um, judicial identification and enforcement of unenumerated rights that emerge over time, um, perhaps out of the states um, or state, state legislatures. My theory of um, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, to the degree that it protects um, substantive rights, and I think it does, I think the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States to the people of 1868 did not involve some unseen line of emerging rights out of, out of state legislatures, but instead they believed the privileges and immunities were those listed in the Bill of Rights. They had spent you know, several decades from the founding to the time of the Civil War realizing that these 10 amendments spoke of rights that really should be enforced for all American citizens no matter where they, where they lived. So my theory of the privileges or immunities clause limits it to those provisions actually in the text of the Constitution which are now enforceable, enforceable against the states. And so that's my argument, that's my, my disagreement with, um, uh, with Randy and Evan. But in their, um, in their article, Randy has now written three articles um, each with roughly the title of why Kurt Lash is wrong. So, <laughs> no, but respectfully, he's very, very respect, fond of respect, I mean, that's right. how you know you're doing okay. Right? <laughs> you, you, got, you get at least three articles from Randy. You're doing, you're doing all right. You're doing all right. And he pointed out, and he fairly, he, he fairly pointed out, he and, he and Evan pointed out, that I didn't always hold this position. That when I first graduated, when I was first writing out of, out of law school, I took a position on the Privileges or Immunities Clause that was the most common uh, position uh, when I first went through law school. I was deeply, um, uh, and I still admire, the work of Akhil Amar. And Akhil Amar at, at Yale discussed how um, the Privileges or Immunities Clause not only incorporates the Bill of Rights, but also should be understood as allowing for a common law development of unenumerated rights over time. And for a number of years, when I was a, an early scholar, I started from that presumption that my teacher was right. Um, and, and, but the more, but then as you go through several decades and you begin to investigate the actual history of the, um, of the 14th Amendment, I began, I began to feel that no, the history didn't, uh, didn't support that reading whatsoever. That was a reading that might have been supported by, uh, by some of the, um, the radical Republicans, but that the moderates, like John Bingham, who were responsible for most of the legislative action in the 39th Congress, the moderates had no interest in binding states to anything other than the provisions which were already in the Constitution. They were constitutionalists. They believed that the South had abandoned the Constitution, so everything they did, um, they explained in terms of we're only enforcing the texts which are already there. So over time, I changed. Over time, I'd, I came to conclude that the moderates who wrote the Privileges or Immunities Clause were focused on rights actually written into the Constitution um, itself. So I have. I've moved, I've moved away. So I want to build on that a little bit, play that out a little bit more. So there are different theories 
about the privilege of immunity clause. You know, you, you've argued it protects the enumerated rights, specifically the first eight amendments and the mm -hmm. Bill of Rights. Right. Uh, Evan and Randy argue that it protects all quote unquote fundamental rights, so unenumerated rights. More recently, Professor Elon Worman uh, has argued that this is basically an equality guarantee. What are the broader implications uh, for our society and the law in terms of some of these interpretations? We're lost. We're completely lost. I think that's, <laughs> that, you know, a while, a while back. These are, these, are all friend, these are all friends of mine. And, um, and, and Elon has also written um, a very influential uh, book. He's teaching what, Arizona State. I, yeah, I that's right. right now. And we've been, we've been friends for years. And he, you know, you'd, he, he has a, a startling understanding of the privileges or immunities clause that, that reads that it's not protecting any substantive rights at all, but is merely, um, um, it is an equal protection kind of provision that tracks the kind of equal protection that you first saw in the Civil Rights Act of, of 1866. It's a very sophisticated theory, and, um, and he's debating people like me um, on the road. But notice how, how different that is. So he had no substantive rights at all under privileges or immunities. Um, my moderate position, my milk toast, watered down <laughs> position, is that, well, no, there are some substantive rights, but only those listed in the Constitution. And then you get Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick. No, 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 it's everything. It's, it's, and it's, and it's ever-expanding um, over time. These are radically different theories of the privileges or immunities clause. And in my mind, the, the fact that there's so much debate over the clause is one of the reasons why the court has resisted um, revisiting and perhaps reinforcing the privileges or immunities clause, because they really don't know. Um, they're looking at scholarship, was, which is pointing in, in vastly different directions, and they are probably wisely um, waiting to see how this historical argument um, plays, plays out over time. But what I love about Elon's and Randy's and, and Evan's work, and why I enjoyed you know, debating with them, all of us are committed to determining what the sovereign people did in 1868, and we can hold each other accountable. That's what's nice about this, um, and historical investigation of, of the Constitution. When someone says, no one ever said that about the Bill of Rights, right, or something along those lines, historical investigation can show you, you know what? A lot of people said that about the Bill of Rights, so then your next article, you, have, you then have to account for that and, and now try to come up with a, a theory that actually fits the evidence, and we're learning more and more and more about the various arguments that were, that were going back and forth. So Randy and Evan and Elon and I and Michael McConnell and Akhil Amar, we're all holding each other accountable, and we are all devoted to investigating aspects of this history which previously have gone undiscovered. So it, we're, we're simply getting to a better place, but we're not quite at the end yet. Yeah, it's, it's certainly true that you all share the common frame of reference of being originalists and, and trying to out-research each other. Yeah, uh, which no, is, that's right. Uh, I which think is, that's right. Which is great. That's what originalists should be doing. Right. Uh, there was that nod in the, in the Dobbs opinion by Justice Alito to Justice Thomas that says, well, even if we look at the privileges or immunities clause, we reach the same result here. So what's Put the Footnote 22 right. in, the Do in the Dobbs opinion. <laughs> that's right. So you've talked about, uh, in a moment, Roger, <laughs> we've talked about, uh, you know, with trying to divine what original intent uh, was in, in 1868 with the 14th Amendment. But, you know, in reviewing 
the book by uh, John McGinnis and, and Michael Rappaport, their book, Originalism and the Good Constitution, uh, you wrote about how the founders, uh, and, and, and certainly the, those august people in the, in the House and Senate in 1868 too, that they didn't always agree on the proper method of constitutional interpretation. Uh, can you explain a little bit about the nature of their debates and, and what that means in terms of, of your research and how we should look at and talk about originalism? Oh, of, of course. Um, um, so John McGinnis and Michael Rappaport, uh, John at Northwestern uh, and, and Michael at the University of San Diego, um, wrote a book a while back. They'd, they'd, they have jointly created a body of scholarship that advocates an approach to originalism which um, relies not only on the original understanding of the text, but which argues that that text must be interpreted according to rules that were in play, rules of interpretation that were in play at the time of the adoption of the text. Now, there are reasons why they, they take that approach. I don't know how, how deep into, into the weeds we want to go here. Originalism is generally presented as this two-step kind of process. Step number one is interpreting, discovering um, the original meaning of the text. That's the interpretation mode. And then the second step has to do with applying that original meaning to a contemporary constitutional dispute. That second step is sometimes called this uh, construction, right? Interpretation, and then now we have the interpretation, now we have to construct a jurisprudence. And interpretation only takes you so far. Interpretation doesn't tell you, maybe it tells you that um, uh, equal citizenship cannot, um, uh, cannot use distinctions that are like caste distinctions or hereditary skin color distinctions. But how exactly we put that idea, an anti-caste understanding of equal citizenship, how then do we put that into play in determining uh, current disputes over anti-discrimination? Do we use tiers of scrutiny? Do we use suspect classes? Do we use intermediate scrutiny? You know, something along those lines. That requires an act of construction. And your act of construction is no longer guided by original understanding. You got everything you could out of the history. Now you have to construct some type of jurisprudence. And it's at that point that originalist scholars scatter into the, into the, into the four winds. Originalist scholars like to fill that area of construction with certain normative theories. We only know so much about the original constitution, so in constructing that into jurisprudence, we should be attentive to principles of natural law or the principles of the Declaration of Independence, um, certain libertarian theories, or maybe certain popular sovereignty theories, or maybe certain theories of the common good. I mean, different originalists have different things they want to fill that area of, of construction with. The problem is, to, to John McGinnis and, um, and, and Michael Rappaport, is that leaves too much discretion in the hands of scholars or judges to fill this broad range of construction with their own preferred, preferred theory. So they believe, through their theory of original methods, originalism, that they've gotten rid of the construction move completely, that there's now no more construction whatsoever Original meaning not only includes the meaning of the text, but also how they're to be applied. Um, so they have their own common law rules and, and rules of statutory construction, perhaps along the lines of what uh, Justice Scalia wrote um, uh, in his book. So they believe that everything is baked into uh, the original meaning of the clauses and the interpretive methodology, so there's no construction zone whatsoever. 
Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a sophisticated theory. It's not one that I share because my investigation of the founding and the founding period um, has um, suggested to me that we are in a period of transition regarding what type of common law rules of methodology would be appropriate for this brand new constitution. We'd never had anything like this constitution before. We had, um, we had the common law, and of course rules of interpretation under common law could be superseded by, by a legislature, by parliament, right? So whatever rules develop in that particular world might not be the same type of rules that you'd have in a culture where now the legislature is bound by a, by a constitution. And then our, our constitution is doubly problematic because it created two governments at the same time, um, both state governments and federal governments, and you had to construe the power of one in a way that reserved certain powers to the other. Common law rules of methodology never had to deal with that type of situation. They always interpreted power to make sure that at the end of the day, the one sovereign government could act, right? Those rules aren't really gonna translate into a world where we have two, uh, two sovereign governments. And that's why uh, uh, St. George Tucker, right, in the first constitutional treatise uh, written in 1803, it was a commentary on Blackstone's, uh, on, on Blackstone. And his whole purpose in writing his version of Blackstone commentaries, he was a jurist in the state, in the state of Virginia, a very influential one. His whole point was to try and figure out what rules of common law interpretation could continue in the context of the American Constitution and which had to be abandoned. And for example, old common law rules regarding seditious libel against the government, maybe those could be allowed under the old British system, but they were wholly inappropriate under the American system of popular sovereignty. So my challenge to Michael, and I understand their, their difficulty with what to do with the zone of construction, but I think we were a new country with a new constitution that had, had no similar example in the world. I think we had to go through decades of struggle to figure out the proper approach to this dual federalist um, kind of constitution. But again, and so we've exchanged and we, we continue to debate. You almost make it sound as if that struggle was a thing of the past, which I don't... Uh... Well, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. We had a civil war and that, that, that remedied some things, but you're right. You're right. Theories of interpretation continue to be a matter of struggle. Yeah. I think so. Close enough. There you go. Is it? Yeah, there you Good. go. Uh, for the benefit of the audience, I'm Roger Pilon, Cato Institute. Um, I enjoyed immensely your formal remarks, Kurt because you're one of those rare speakers with whom I have found absolutely nothing to disagree. <laughs> However, things started to go south when you responded to John's first question. Sorry. So close. <laughs> I was so close. You um, uh, took great umbrage at the uh, fact that the court has, has ignored the first three clauses of the 14th Amendment. You're absolutely right. But you implied in your response to John that you are ignoring the Ninth Amendment by not seeing it as incorporated under the 14th Amendment. So I put to you this. Suppose the Bill of Rights had not been passed. Suppose we did not have the first eight amendments. What privileges or immunities of citizenship, federal or state, would people have enjoyed? It seems to me that 
Akhil Amar is on to something here. The rights that we enjoyed at common law or under state statutory law. And so you've got to come to grips with the meaning of the Ninth Amendment, which if it is given its proper meaning, means that the first eight amendments, as they understood at the time, are simply those that we can enumerate. There are countless others that we cannot because we have an infinite number of rights to enumerate. And this comes up in cases like, uh, like Griswold, like Lawrence v. Texas, not Roe, which is a very different case as Justice Alito understood. And it brings us to the question, what are these rights and privileges that are unenumerated? And you cannot ignore the Ninth Amendment just as judges cannot ignore the first three clauses. They mean something. We know what they meant because the authors told us what they meant. All we have to do is read Hamilton, uh, Roger Williams, uh, Wilson, and others as to why they opposed a Bill of Rights and the answers that were given to that. And you can understand that the Constitution establishes a sea of rights with islands of power. I rest my case. Okay. I was wondering whether there was going to be a question mark in there, but that's okay. <laughs> Kurt, you can, you can respond to that. Roger, how long have we been arguing this? About 35 years. About 35 years. Okay. All right. And it's a challenge. It's, it's an absolutely fair and, and important challenge um, because the Ninth Amendment does speak of other rights you know, retained, retained by the people. We've, strugg you know, we've struggled with the idea of is it incorporated in the, into, um, uh, uh, along with the rest of the amendments into the 14th Amendment, but if it is incorporated into the 14th Amendment, haven't they incorporated this idea that there are, there's a series, there's some other rights um, retained by the people, and so the court therefore would have a, respond, a responsibility to construct those and to enforce those. I don't know why you would, you would exclude Roe v. Wade. It seems to me that reproductive rights would certainly be um, among the categories of potential, potential rights. But we'd still have to, we'd still have to talk, and there might, be, there might be some we'd recognize and, and some we wouldn't. I don't recognize any of those. Um, what Roger knows um, is that um, I, I wrote an entire book uh, about the Ninth Amendment. That was my first foray into originalist, originalist in investigation. And, the night, and I spoke briefly about it, and we could, we could spend a whole lot of time um, talking about it, but I, only, I want to say a couple of things. You're right that um, there are other rights, there are other rights beyond those actually written into the Bill of Rights, which are retained by the people. And this, of course, is the position by um, Randy Barnett and, and Evan Burnick. But what has always surprised me is how narrowly um, Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick understand that term rights. The Ninth, the Ninth Amendment doesn't say there are other individual rights retained by the people. Right? It just says there are other rights retained by the people. What were rights to the people of the founding era? What was their idea? What kind of idea of rights did they have when they spoke of rights? 
Well, some of them were individual, and some of them were the rights of the, the Declaration of Independence and things along those lines. But there were also collective rights. Um, the, great, the great motto, right, of the, the revolutionary period, no taxation without representation, that's not an individual right. That's a right to be taxed, but only by a particular deliberative body, right? Um, one that is representative here on our side and not across, not across the ocean. That's also a right, a collective right retained by the people. What were other rights that were in play at the time that they adopted the Bill of Rights? What was the most important right in play at the time of the Bill of Rights? State rights, the collected retained rights of the people. These are the ones who asked for a Bill of Rights in the first place. They were worried that the enumeration of powers given into the hands of the federal government were going to be so broadly construed that they were going to lose all of the rights of local, of local self-government, a collective right to have certain matters regulated on a local level and not given into the hands of the, of the, national, the national government. And so they'd, when they didn't produce a Bill of Rights, of course, in the original Consti Constitution, Hamilton and Wilson and others said, well, you don't need a Bill of Rights. You don't need a Bill of Rights because this is just a government of enumerated powers. And if you added a Bill of Rights, that would suggest that the federal government could regulate everything except those particular things which you placed off limits. So the federal government would be able to regulate local contract, local tort, <coughs> local property, um, local marriage laws, local criminal law. I mean, anything that you didn't actually, things that we know, of course, and we study as law students and uh, that are part of the rights and areas left to state, to state control. So, so they said, we don't need a Bill of Rights. We're going to go with the, the doctrine of enumerated power. If we add the bill, that might suggest that they can reach everything except which is placed off limits. That didn't work. They continued. The states continued to ask for specific restrictions on federal power. Madison produces his list of, of rights. He concedes the issue, OK, we'll give you a bill. But in order to avoid that um, erroneous implication that the federal government can now reach everything in the states, other than those actually placed in the Bill of Rights, he adds a Ninth Amendment. The enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights, broadly understood, of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The whole purpose of that clause was to maintain the principle of limited enumerated power. What happens with the powers not given into the hands of the federal government? Then you get the second text. You know, powers not delegated by this Constitution to the government nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Those two clauses, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, were meant to work together. They were intended to preserve the autonomy of the people in the states over the innumerable areas not meant to be given into the hands, the hands of the national government. And then one last thing, Roger, you said you, we know, um, I believe you said we know what the Ninth Amendment means because they told us what the Ninth Amendment means. Um, but then you said names. You said names like, um, like Wilson and Hamilton. They never said anything about the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment didn't exist at the time that they wrote um, their writings. Who did talk about the Ninth Amendment? James Madison, the man who drafted the Ninth Amendment, talked about the Ninth Amendment in a famous speech that he gave while the Bill of Rights were still pending before the states. And in his speech opposing the Bank of the United States, he argued that incorporation um, of the type that was going to create the Bank of the United States was a matter that was reserved to the people in the states, and that that was the whole point of the currently proposed amendments, in particular the 11th and 12th, which at that time 
um, were the 11th and 12th of 12 proposed, uh, proposed amendments. He was speaking of the 9th and 10th amendments are there to prevent this type of um, expansive interpretation of federal power. All of these areas were meant to be left to the states. Now, whatever you think about the Bank of the United States and whether it was constitutional or not, the fact is we do have someone saying what the Ninth Amendment meant, the man who drafted it, and he interpreted it as a federalism provision, um, retaining the collective right to local, local self-government. I rest my case. <laughs> There's a lot of scholarship right now on citizenship rights. It seems to be the hottest topic in, in legal scholarship. Kind of building off of this last question, Professor, um, building in the Amar Barnett tradition, Professor Campbell Bowden Sachs are doing a lot on general citizenship rights, and they have some recent they have some scholarship coming out on general citizenship rights and how that interacts with the general law, which of course, when the Fourteenth Amendment came out, uh, was all the rage in the pre-Erie world. You know, in your remarks, there's not much. There's nothing on general law or general general citizenship rights. As all this new scholarship is coming out on that, and young law students are finding this very persuasive, as we start thinking about what the Fourteenth Amendment actually meant as an original matter, how do you incorporate that as it pertains to you know even going beyond incorporating the Bill of Rights? There are general citizenship rights that they point to in the scholarship that go beyond that and you know possibly limit part of the Bill of Rights. What are your thoughts on some of this recent scholarship as it pertains to the general law? Thank Where you. do they point to uh, the Constitution for the source of general citizenship? Um, it's the background general law tradition that's existed, you know, that is up until Erie struck it down. This is that's his ultimate conclusion. That's Judd Judd Campbell, and really Judd is the one who who initially started that particular area. And now he's continuing to work uh, work with um, uh, with with Bode and Sachs, where Judd bases his historical argument. He's not an originalist, but he does a lot of work in um, in uh, in historical historical materials. And where he finds the concept of general citizenship um, is in the writings of Joseph, Joseph Story. And Joseph Story's his 1833, his 1833 uh, Comentaries on the American Constitution. And Joseph Story describes the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 as establishing a kind of general citizenship. And so Judd then banks off from there and says, so there must be this concept concept of general citizenship, and he believes that it is informed by certain ideas of natural rights, because that's always been Judd's work, that he believes that natural law and natural rights and common law understanding of natural rights um, should inform the, the, con the Constitution in general. I have a very different theory. I think that, that Joseph Story didn't have a broader theory. He was simply describing Article IV's Privileges and Immunities Clause, which allows a citizen from one state to receive equal treatment and equal access to a certain limited number of local rights when they traveled from, from state to state. And he was remarking about how that kind of created a general citizenship, even though there was no definition of citizenship anywhere in the, original, in the original Constitution. And so he spoke about how that provision, by creating a general citizenship, really knit together the nation. He believed that Article IV, more than any other provision in the original Constitution, suggested that we really were a national people and not just individual autonomy, auto autonomous members of the states. So, so in, my, in my theory, um, that general citizenship and that right of equal treatment is one of the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. I think one of the things that the 14th Amendment does, and they said this expressly, while they were debating the, the, 14, the 14th Amendment. Equal treatment, as you went from one state or the other, was a huge issue during the antebellum period. And it was one that was specifically 
denied by the southern states. The southern states just, you know, if you're, if you're um, a white preacher wanting to come down and, and, or an abolitionist and you want to visit um, the southern states, you're not going to receive uh, the same type of basic set of civil rights that were granted to Southern citizens. You would be run out of town on a rail, uh, tarred and feathered. If you were a, a citizen, a black citizen of the state of Massachusetts and a sailor on a ship who wanted to, who was moving from port to port, from Charleston, say, up into New York Harbor, you didn't have any equal privileges or immunities when you went, when you went to Charleston. And Republicans and abolitionists were furious about, about this. It was one of the major disputes prior to the Civil War but they had no constitutional power to make the southern states provide equal rights to visiting citizens from, from other states. It simply was a provision that, um, that could be enforced by courts, but didn't give any legislative power to Congress. So when they debated uh, during the debates of 1866, one of the specific things they wanted to do was finally give Congress power to enforce those rights actually listed in the Constitution, including the rights um, for equal, equal rights of visitors going from state to state as declared in the General Citizenship Clause of, of Article 4. So it, I, I can incorporate ideas about, about general citizenship, but I simply disagree with Judd that, that again, there's this kind of pervasive cloud of, um, of general natural rights that should constrain our understanding of, um, of the provisions of the Constitution. One last thing regarding their, their, particular, their particular ideas. Judd insists that we should read freedom of speech according to common law understandings of freedom of speech that were in play at the time of the, the adoption of the original Constitution. In other words, he thinks the Alien and Sedition Act was, was okay. Um, and he has a far more, his scholarship, and he's a, he's a, he, for probably about another 30 seconds, he's a colleague of mine at, um, at, um, at Richmond. He's gonna, he's gonna go on to, to, greater, to greater things. Um, but his, his scholarship has been focused on the idea that freedom of speech is overly protected by the current court and that there should be far more room of government regulation and government censorship of speech because we should be following the rules that came out of the common law in Europe. And that's part of his general ideas of law um, and natural law and common law ideas that should even inform our construction of post-14th Amendment rights. And, and my challenge to Judd, and it's been this way for decades now, is that he has to account for the deeper understanding of individual liberty that developed between the time of the founding and the time of the Civil War. Um, Republicans increasingly saw the need to protect inflammatory speech. Whatever might have been a dispute about seditious, um, seditious speech at the time of the founding, by the time you get to, um, to the Civil War, um, it was the South that was suppressing seditious speech and it was the North, the framers of the 14th Amendment, who were saying, no, um, religious exercise, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, as listed in our Constitution, deserves protection. And their theories about protection were far deeper and far more significant than anything that existed at the time of the founding. So this is my ongoing argument with all three of them. Bowd, um, uh, uh, Will Bowd and Stephen Sachs haven't done too much on this area, but it's Judd that I, who I would really like to see be more attentive um, uh, to theories of liberty that happened by the time of 1868. So I see hands being stuck up, but I, I'm afraid that we have, as I knew would be the case, our hour has flown by. 
so you really you honor us by being here uh, today, Kurt. I have this remarkably heavy uh, Mies Originalism Award for you. I hope you enjoy it. This is and thank you all for thank being so here much. with us tonight on this special evening. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you.